Please turn in your Bible to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 7. Our attention this morning will be devoted to verses 24 through verse 30. What I am about to read is the word of God himself. This morning, through the reading of God's word, God kindly addresses each of us and reveals himself to us. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child. Lying in bed. And the demon. Gone. If you enjoy professional basketball. You have a keen interest in the NBA draft. That takes place each year. In the 2014 draft. Jabari Parker. Who unfortunately played for Duke was picked second overall in the draft by the Milwaukee Bucks. And just prior to the draft, Sports Illustrated did a feature article on Parker entitled, The Education of Jabari Parker, One Supremely Gifted Freshman, One Hall of Fame Coach, An Intimate Look at the Journey to Becoming College Basketball's Top Talent. It was a behind-the-scenes look at Parker and his relationship with Duke basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski. Scenes like this one. An assistant texted Parker that the coach wanted to see him in the theater where the team studies film. He entered and found Krzyzewski sitting high above him in the top row. Come in and have a seat, Krzyzewski said. You think you're in trouble, don't you? Yeah, said Parker. This ain't one of those meetings, the coach assured him. 
Sitting side by side, they watched video of a scrimmage. Krzyzewski hit pause. Look at your feet, he said. They are in the wrong position. Parker nodded. Krzyzewski stood and demonstrated the correct stance. Moments later, Krzyzewski stopped the tape again. Look at your hands, he said. They are not ready. I got to change that, Parker said. On the next sequence, Coach K zeroed in on Parker's hips. They were turned in the wrong direction. This is about precision and doing physical things to create better habits, Krzyzewski said. It's what the guys I coach in the summer do. Kobe and LeBron and Durant are precise. After an hour, Coach K turned off the film. I never realized I looked that bad, Parker said. Krzyzewski leaned in closer and looked into Parker's eyes. It's not personal, he told him. It's the truth. Parker left the theater energized. It's not personal. It's the truth. Now, it might appear that Coach K was being harsh, excessively critical of Jabari Parker. Actually, he was simply trying to serve his standout player with an honest evaluation of deficiencies in his play. This was simply an illustration of good coaching. This morning, Mark provides us with a behind-the-scenes encounter between a Gentile woman and the Son of God where we overhear a most unexpected statement from the Son of God to this Gentile woman. This passage includes one of the most shocking statements, one of the most shocking statements ever spoken by Jesus. Jesus calls this desperate mother, This desperate mother who is appealing to him on behalf of her tormented daughter, a dog. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, of which she would be one. Jesus' response to her is startling, and it appears harsh. And rude. However, we will discover this morning that he is not harsh or rude in any way. He just leans in close to her, looks her in the eyes, and says, in effect, it's not personal, it's the truth. And he speaks truth to her for the purpose, listen, for the purpose of giving her. Hope and provoking her faith. This morning, it might surprise you to discover that Jesus, as one scholar notes, is not the affable fellow we imagine him always to be. No, he is not. He is, however, like no one you have ever met. No one. And Mark also introduces us to this Gentile woman who is a compelling example to us of what one writer describes as gutsy faith. 
From this woman, we learn what faith is, how faith acts. The scriptures provide us not only with definitions of faith and exhortations to faith, but also illustrations of faith. And this, my friends, is one compelling illustration of faith. J.C. Ryle observes, we know nothing of the woman mentioned here, but the few facts that are related about this woman are full of precious instruction. Let us observe them and learn wisdom. Yeah, let's do that this morning. Let us observe them and learn wisdom. The account consists of three parts. First, an introduction, verses 24 to 26. Second, an interaction between Jesus and the woman, verses 27 and 28. And then finally, a pronouncement and miracle by Jesus, verses 29 and 30. But Mark begins by informing us of an unexpected journey undertaken by the Son of God. Point one, a transition and an introduction, verses 24 to 26. Verse 24, and from there he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now listen, it's important for us to be aware that Jesus has just concluded a major conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes over the true nature and source of defilement before God. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. And after abolishing the distinction between clean and unclean in relation to foods in this conflict with the Pharisees, Jesus intentionally makes his way into Gentile territory to abolish by his example the clean and unclean distinction the Jewish leaders have made between Jew and Gentile. So Jesus now enters from the perspective of the Jewish leaders an unclean Gentile Eric, and he has contact with an unclean Gentile woman who has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. And this is all intentional. This is all purposeful by the Savior. Jesus isn't just wandering around killing time. He's getting something done. He is making a loud public statement. This was a public disregard for the religious leaders and their understanding of defilement. And it is also an expression of his compassion for the lost. So he is intentionally and publicly and purposely rejecting the tradition and the prejudice of the elders by this journey into Gentile territory. In other words, given, given the expectations of the Jewish people for the Messiah, this journey into Tyre and Sidon, it was simply inconceivable. Because they expected the Messiah to subdue the Gentiles, not to serve the Gentiles. And this particular location, it would be an extreme example of Gentile paganism. One scholar writes that Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. So so Jesus intentionally makes his way to the ancient version of Las Vegas or New Orleans. And even though he didn't want anyone to know where he was staying, this was simply not possible. Not possible. 
Not possible given his fame, because of his words, and because of his works. There was simply no way to keep his presence a secret. No way. And a desperate mother hears about him being at a certain house. She is, she is desperate because her daughter is possessed and tormented by an evil spirit. So one can understand, one can understand this mother's compassion for her daughter, given the tormented state of her daughter and the absence of any hope for her daughter until she hears one Jesus of Nazareth has arrived. He is staying nearby. This Jesus whose fame has spread because of his works and his words is nearby. And hearing that Jesus is close by, she feels a strange sensation in her heart. Hope, hope, hope for her daughter. She is desperate. This is a desperate mother who loves her daughter. And she will not be denied in pursuing Jesus, having heard he was in the area. So we read, but immediately, verse 25, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Let me just say what mother present here wouldn't do exactly the same on behalf of her daughter. Now listen, Mark is giving us, did you notice how much detail? Mark is giving us this detail. He is intentional about providing us with this detail because Mark wants us to feel the tension. He wants us to feel the tension in the room as she abruptly and unexpectedly enters the room. She's a woman. She's a Gentile. And her daughter has an unclean spirit. In his commentary on Mark's gospel, James Edwards informs us, listen, of all the people who approach Jesus in the gospel of Mark, this individual, this woman has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. Verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. Even Levi, the tax collector, must have raised his eyebrows at this woman when she entered the room. So feel the tension. We, we have, a, we have an ex, a, a serious historic drama that's just playing out here. And listen, everyone present in the room is wondering what is going to happen next. Everyone present is listening intently. How will he respond to her and her desperate plea? Which brings us to point two. The interaction between Jesus and the woman, verses 27 and 28. And oh my, what an interaction this would turn out to be. This is the heart of the story and no one present anticipated Jesus' response to her. By the way, if you're familiar with Mark's gospel, you'll you'll remember there was someone else who 
fell at Jesus' feet and made a desperate plea in Mark chapter 5. In chapter 5, there was a leader of a synagogue named Jairus, whose daughter was at the point of death. He also came and fell down at Jesus' feet. He appealed to Jesus to come and lay his hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And Jesus immediately, Mark records, immediately went with him and eventually raised her from the dead. So... Now we have a Gentile woman a few chapters later. She approaches Jesus in a similar fashion to the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus says to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He responds to her desperate plea. By calling her a dog. Jesus tells a parable and he calls her a dog. Do you find this just a bit unsettling? I mean, we're all for Jesus being sharp with the Pharisees. We're all for Jesus calling out the Pharisees. I mean, that just strikes us as most appropriate. But calling this desperate mother At his feet, pleading on behalf of her demonized daughter, calling her a dog? Don't you find yourself perplexed by the Savior's response to this woman? Now listen, some background is important for us to understand what's going down here. And, And in order to understand this statement, one, listen... One must not read our dog-loving culture into this scene (laughs) and into this culture, okay? Because at this time and in this culture, dogs were not universally loved. Now, at this time and in this culture, dogs were more like scavengers than pets. And the Jews associated dogs with uncleanness. Dogs were how the Jews identified Gentiles. They considered them unclean. This designation was an insult. And though Jesus softens the insult somewhat by using the Greek word for household pet, this still very much appears to be harsh and rude and insulting. In response to her plea, tells her a parable and calls her a dog. He, he, Jesus describes a domestic scene. There's a family meal. All the children are being fed and well fed. And in this parable, this desperate woman is likened to a dog. And though this can appear to be shocking and can appear to us to even be rude and insulting, it is, in fact, an invitation. It's an invitation and it is a provocation. This is a test of her faith. Jesus is in fact testing the genuineness of this woman's faith. And actually, I would argue that what is more shocking than this statement by Jesus is her response. Because she gets it. She gets the parable. She gets the parable and the point of the parable and she agrees with him. Yes, Lord. She agrees with him 
And not only does she agree with him, then she responds to him with her own parable. Verse 28, yes, Lord, yet, yes, Lord, yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is a remarkable response. (laughs) It's just remarkable. Her reply is remarkable. And Mark presents this to us as a compelling example of, listen, humble faith. Spurgeon said this was featured, quote, so that the church through the ages might see how beautiful her faith was. So, brothers and sisters, behold beautiful faith. Let's, let's just, actually, let's momentarily just consider her compelling example so that we might learn from her compelling example. Listen, this woman teaches us how to approach God. She teaches us how to pray. Not only how to pray in general, this woman teaches us how to make big, bold requests of God. That's what she teaches us. She teaches us how to trust God in the midst of our trials and suffering. She instructs us by her words and example that, listen, true faith, true faith involves both acknowledging our unworthiness and affirming his generosity. That's what true faith involves. Acknowledging our unworthiness and affirming his generosity. True faith involves both. And both are embodied in this woman's example and through her words. First, she acknowledges her unworthiness. In this parable, Jesus is making an appropriate distinction, an appropriate distinction between Jew and Gentile. In this parable, Jesus is acknowledging the uniqueness of Israel and the appropriate order of priority for him and his ministry. The gospel is to be proclaimed first to the Jew and then to the Gentile as redemptive history unfolds. The children, Israel, must be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread, the gospel of the kingdom that he has inaugurated and is proclaiming and throw it to the dogs. That would be Gentiles like you. And she immediately and completely agrees. Yes, Lord. She humbly accepts the category of dog and the application of that category to herself. She humbly acknowledges her unworthiness. She gets it. I don't belong at the table. I don't belong in a seat at the table. I'm not numbered among the children. Yes, Lord, I am a dog. I merit nothing. I am here pleading at your feet with nothing to commend me. I am decidedly unworthy. She agrees. She is not worthy. She does not deny the precedence of Israel. But here's what she does. Brilliant. She seizes upon the word first. (laughs) She seizes upon the word first. And she understood that would mean she is not excluded. Actually, she rightly perceived his use of first as an invitation. As a provocation. The word first carried hope to this woman's heart. Yes, Lord, yet, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
So she understands she is not first. She gets that she is unworthy. However, she also perceives that his mission extends beyond the Jews to Gentiles, to dogs like her, and she perceives his heart of mercy and generosity. And listen, she perceives and anticipates there's going to be a surplus after the kids have eaten. There's going to be a surplus, and that surplus, because of your generosity, that surplus is available to dogs like me. So she acknowledged her unworthiness, but she also affirmed his generosity. She gets it. He is good. He is gracious. He is generous and she trusts in his generosity. She anticipates that wherever he is, there will be a surplus of blessing. There will be crumbs. Crumbs. Oh my. She actually comprehends more about the bread he offers and his generosity than the disciples who witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. She is more perceptive than they in relation to him. She is a compelling example of humble faith. She is humble. She acknowledges she is unworthy. However, this accurate assessment, it does not result in her withdrawing from him, discouraged or condemned. Or offended? No, instead, she has faith to approach him and boldly make this request of him on the basis of his mercy and his generosity. This woman is a compelling example to us of humble faith, brothers and sisters, for we cannot approach God or appeal to God on the basis of our character, our obedience, our good works, our service, or even our suffering. For we are not in and of ourselves worthy. And we will never in and of ourselves be worthy. And Martin Luther, whose hymn we sung earlier, captured this effectively when he wrote, God gives you nothing on account of your worthiness. (laughs) And by the way, the reader of Mark's gospel should be convinced of his or her unworthiness, having been freshly reminded of this unworthiness in chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. So for a fresh reminder this morning of our unworthiness, let's just read. Let me read verses 20 to 23. And let me just tell you, there isn't anybody in this room right now whose picture doesn't appear in this photograph. Your face appears in this photograph somewhere. And he said, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. Foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. 
a fresh reminder that there is no one present here who can approach God on the basis of their worthiness. However, that doesn't mean we're supposed to withdraw from God simply because we are unworthy in and of ourselves. And it doesn't please God if we simply or solely acknowledge our unworthiness before God, for He is good and gracious and generous, and He has graciously come to ransom and redeem us. He has graciously come to adopt us by grace and then invite us to boldly approach His throne of grace. Now, we please Him by acknowledging our unworthiness and, and, and affirming He is good and He is gracious and He is generous. Just as this woman has done following her example. And let me just say that after really more than 40 years, how could it be in pastoral ministry? I, I think this would be my perspective. I, I think that many Christians are more familiar with the unworthiness part and not as convinced of the goodness, graciousness, and generosity part. Too, too often we are more aware of our unworthiness than we are his grace and generosity. And therefore, we are reluctant to approach him and plead his promises. Too too often we think of our unworthiness as disqualifying us from approaching him. Too often his goodness and grace and generosity are not informing and governing our lives. Too often we don't agree with the words of the Puritan Richard Sibbs when he wrote, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Puritan pastor, hymn writer, and and prolific letter writer, John Newton, addressed an individual for whom he shared this very concern in in the following letter that I'm going to quote from. And I, I think this letter could be written to many of us this morning. Newton wrote, you say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside yourself. But listen, you may be Indeed, you are improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. Oh my, there's a wealth of wisdom. (laughs) There's a wealth of grace and wisdom in that quote. Oh, Oh my friend, you don't want to be guilty. Listen, you don't want to be guilty of having a low opinion of the person and work and promises of the Redeemer. That is not humble faith. Listen, this woman had the appropriate low opinion of herself as unworthy, but she did not have a low opinion of the Son of God. No, she had a 
appropriately high opinion of the work of the Son of God, the person and work of the Son of God. She had a high opinion of the person and the work and the promises of the Redeemer. Tim Keller also effectively captures this concern when he wrote these words. You are more wicked than you ever dared believe, but you are more loved than you ever dared hope. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. And don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. This woman gets it. This woman gets it, and she models humble faith, humility before God in light of her sin, faith in God in light of his goodness and graciousness and generosity. And so, note the Savior's response. Point three, note his pronouncement and miracle in verses 29 and 30. He said to her, for this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And though Mark doesn't provide us with a detailed description of his tone or his facial expression, I think, I think we can safely assume he was delighted. He was delighted for he commends her faith and he grants her request. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, writes, there was a sparkle in his eye and a smile on his face. No Doubt. And by the way, she doesn't just get a crumb. She gets everything she asked for. Oh my. Brothers and sisters, let us use our sanctified imagination for just a moment. What must this have been like for her to hear him say, go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Try to imagine this woman hurrying on her way with breathless excitement and anticipation that the demon has now left her daughter. What must it have been like for this mother to enter her home, to find her daughter, to look into the eyes of her daughter and no longer see the tormenting influence of a demon, but instead peace through those eyes in the transformed life of her daughter. What must that reunion have been like? And oh, hallelujah, what a savior. He, listen, though this woman is a compelling example for us and to us, the, the centerpiece of the story is the savior. Don't ever take your eyes off the savior. He is the centerpiece of the story. And here's all it took, this expression, not only of his compassion and his authority. He didn't have to be present He didn't have to accompany her. He didn't have to go with her. He just quietly said, be gone. That demon was history. He informed her, demon's gone. Nothing dramatic. Jesus didn't stand up. No. This is the son of God. And as she responded in humble faith, he said to the demon, be gone. And the demon was gone. The demon has left your daughter. Behold, behold the compassion and behold the authority and power of the Son of God who does not need to be physically present to cast out a demon. Okay, finally, two points of application. This this 
functions for us as a preview and a provocation. A preview and a provocation. First, it's a preview. This, this story is a preview of the purpose of his coming and the mission of the church to proclaim the gospel to all nations. So this should inspire you, Brad, did such an effective job encouraging us to seize this cultural moment to invite people. Well, this, this is part of the Savior's mission, and it's explicit and compellingly presented to us here. So this is a preview. This is a preview of the purpose of his coming and the mission of the church to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. Listen, what happened here, what began here actually, oh my, Lord, help us to feel this. What began here, it will eventually make its way to, to Gentile sinners like you and me. That's, that's what's underway here. What's being inaugurated here? What's underway here? He is on his way to you. To sinners like you and me. Listen, to, to understand this, it is is to be affected by this. Because this, this should inform your understanding of your conversion experience. He is here beginning to make his way to Gentile dogs like you and me. So actually when you read this, this story should remind you of his love for you. That should be part of the effect of this story. It should remind you of his love for you because he is beginning to make his way into Gentile territory. And that is a picture of the future of the church in proclaiming the gospel. So he's beginning to make his way to Gentile dogs like you and me. But first, first, he has to make his way back to Jerusalem. He's got to go back to Jerusalem because he's got to make his way to a hill called Calvary. Gentile dogs like you and me, oh, wonder of wonders. Gentile dogs like you and me will become, Gentile dogs like you and me will become children of God. Children of God because of the adopting grace of God that is made possible by the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross. He, listen, he would become a dog. He would become unclean with our sin on the cross, so that we, by grace, might be cleansed and become children of God. The Father made him who knew no sin to be a dog on the cross with my sin and your sin, so that we might be made children of God. This is a preview of his purpose for coming and the mission of the church to proclaim this message to all nations. Second, it's a provocation. It's a provocation. This woman should provoke us. She should provoke us. She's, this story's been preserved to provoke us. 
so that we might imitate her example. Let me just ask you a question. What, I'm sure you've got them. Let me just ask you, what big, bold request do you need to humbly make of God today? Got a big, bold request? Got more than one big, bold request? Listen, this should provoke us to make big, bold requests of God humbly, confidently, because He is good and gracious and generous. So, let me just encourage all of us. Let's follow this woman's example. Before you fall asleep tonight and in the coming days, don't you hesitate to make big, bold requests of God. Oh, not on the basis of your worthiness. No, no, no. No, don't be a dope. Not on that basis, okay? No. Always, completely on the basis that He, the Son of God, is good and gracious and generous. So, let's acknowledge our unworthiness in light of our sinfulness, but let's transition to an affirmation of his goodness and his graciousness and his generosity. Listen, this woman was convinced of his graciousness and generosity prior to the cross. How much more should you and I be convinced of his graciousness and generosity living as we do on the other side of the cross? We are aware this morning of the most magnificent demonstration of his generosity in all of history. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a biblical perspective that should inspire And inform us to approach him. A big, bold request. Theologian, pastor, and author Sinclair Ferguson once asked the following question in a sermon he preached. He asked, how many of us will get to the throne on that last day? And with a twinge of regret say, If only I had known you were this gracious. If only I had known you were this gracious. Let me tell you something. This woman, she will not have that regret on the last day. Will you? Well, not if you're provoked by her example of humble faith. This woman's example should provoke us so that we might trust today in a fresh way, in his goodness, in his graciousness, in his generosity, so that we will not have any regrets on the last day. Let's pray. Father, how how kind of you to preserve this story, to preserve this event, this moment, this interaction, to preserve the humble faith of this woman, 
to preserve the graciousness and generosity of your son. All with us in mind. Lord, we were in your peripheral vision when you inspired Mark to write his gospel for moments like this. How kind of you. So, Lord, by your spirit, I ask that this passage and this woman and our Savior would have an effect on our lives so that, reminded of our unworthiness, we actually might be more amazed by your graciousness and approach you through the Son and his work you have provided and make big, bold requests of you all because you are gracious and generous and ultimately all for your glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.